The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman from The Homes Report. And joining me over the internet from London is we international president, Alan Vandermolen. Alan, how are you? I'm well. I'm having some coffee and we're doing this interweb thing and 2019 uh, is off to a good start. It, it, it certainly is. You have written a, a post full of predictions some more controversial than others. Uh, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk through some of them with you. I'd be, I'd be most happy to. Okay, excellent. Well, let's start off with your first prediction for 2019. Um, you call it the reemergence of the CCO. Um, you say that this never have the skills, sensitivities and competencies of an enlightened breed of communicator been greater. And I think the theory here is quite, is quite straightforward and easy to understand. Um, you know, the, as you've mentioned, there are various environmental factors um, that are making stakeholder-sensitive decision-making a core competency. Could you maybe run through some of those environmental factors? Absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at the macro level for businesses and organizations, including governments and NGOs, and what's happening in their operating environment is, uh, it's an operating environment that is dominated by rising tides of nationalism, by questionable believability and reliability of sources of news and information, of what I would call polarization of views of toxic content, both in the online world and in the physical world, of rising trade tensions and, let's say, some irrational behaviors on, on behalf of, of governments. So that makes for a very, very tricky operating environment for companies in particular when they're trying to engage in rational, well-reasoned dialogues with stakeholders critical to their success. Mm -hmm. Okay. And all of this plays to the strengths of the chief communications officer. Look, it, play, it plays to the historical core competencies and the, let's say, updated and modernized capabilities of the chief communications officer. So if we look back at the last, let's say five years, I would argue that you've seen a real tug of war happening for credibility of the CCO in the C-suite, whether the C-suite's on the corporate side or, or within the public sector or within governments. And that's been driven by, I think, a fundamental change to how the media environment operates, meaning we've seen um, the mainstream media business model come after aggressive attack. We've seen um, social platforms really dominate um, conversation, if you will. Uh, 
and social platforms have also, as they've transitioned their models to paid, have required a paid media competency um, for quote engagement or influence. And that has tilted the, um, the scales in the way of the chief marketing officer over the chief communications officer. So the chief communications officer in many instances um, has played second fiddle to the CMO in particular at um, consumer facing companies. I think at the same time as the regulatory environment and trade tensions have increased, you've seen um, legal counsel in particular take on greater responsibility for policy, um, for public affairs, and also for comms, which in a lot of instances has led to what I would call an anti-engagement bias, a you know saying nothing is saying more bias instead of an engagement bias because engagement is viewed um, many times in the C-suite as, as high risk with very little reward. Now, I, think, I don't think that's true in all instances. I think we've got some very enlightened um, CCOs that have come out of, of politics. Um, Nick Clegg, notably into Facebook, I think is a, is a brilliant move um, to, to, to name kind of the most recent um, person of a political public affairs background uh, being elevated to a CCO. But, but my broader point is, in the historical environment, you've seen legal overtaking CCO and you've seen CMOs overtaking CCO because of environmental factors. I think now, given um, what's happening with, again, the things I ran through, toxic content, the continued erosion of mainstream media, uh, rising tides of nationalism, et cetera, et cetera, the CCO and the skills of a modern CCO are needed in a boardroom today, I think perhaps more than in my professional history, which is 30 years. Hmm. Okay, um, you make the point that the the um, the CCO is reemerging, um, and you've explained that uh, the CCO, you know, in some cases has been subservient to the, to the CMO, sometimes to um, the, the the top legal officer in, uh, in some organizations. I mean, we we wrote a post a few years ago now asking whether the CCO is an endangered species. Um, and indeed, our research since then, um, notably in the Global Communications Report, which we do with USC Annenberg, um, does suggest that communications is, is still being viewed as secondary in, in many organizations to the marketing function, often because of the bigger budgets that are wielded by marketers um, and, and, frankly, by, by the, the, the bigger profile they sometimes have. Do, do you feel that CCOs can, can credibly overcome these kinds of internal challenges this year? Uh, there's, there's no doubt in my mind, and I'll tell you why. Because at the heart of organizational success, again, whether that's a, a branded company, an enterprise-facing company, um, governments or NGOs, is real-time, transparent dialogue. And in order to do that, the only function... I think at the C-suite that's equipped to do that is the chief communications officer. The CMO wields a lot of power, absolutely, because they control big marketing budgets and they control big paid budgets, and they will continue to do so. However, the CMO lives in a one-way message world. The CMO lives in a greatest common denominator, let's blanket the world with a one-core message world. They do not live in a nuanced, 
dialogue-driven environment that requires very tricky and skilled dialogue with stakeholders which may have opposing points of view to what the corporation is trying to achieve. Hmm. Would you not allow for the possibility that perhaps over the last five to ten years um, a more enlightened CMO has emerged given that in many companies they have been charged with some of the functions that would traditionally have gone towards the communications department? Um, and, and, and perhaps that does benefit the CMO at, at the expense of the CCO? Uh, I think the organizations that are going to be most successful are those that look at comms and marketing as separate and equal functions, independent of the budget allocated to each. The communications function, with the exception of in business-to-business plays is never going to have budgets equal to ones that the CMO has, simply because CMOs are spending money on global advertising across platforms, and and that requires a lot of money. So I I think if you look at power equals money, I, I don't think that's a true dynamic anymore. And I think what's changed that dynamic is social media and the mobile web. Because what social media and the mobile web have both done is they've enabled tribes. They've enabled um, what I would call groups of least common denominator stakeholders versus one-way communication to greatest common denominator stakeholders. And, And because of that, the CCO, again, I think has to work on real-time ongoing dialogue, and I still don't think the CMO, in most cases, is equipped to do that, nor has the bandwidth to do it. Mm. Okay. Um, and, and indeed, you make the point that there's disproportionate power in the hands of performance marketing models, which is presumably something that has boosted the, um, or, or perhaps has, has risen in tandem with the rise of the CMO? Well, I think, look, performance marketing models have, have become a threat, and, and I would say, you know, probably a necessary check and balance to um, ineffective marketing. Um, and you can see that in the holding companies and what are happening to advertising budgets there and questions that are being asked now um, by marketers and brands of advertising agencies about the efficacy of campaigns, um, whether they're strategic campaigns or or tactical campaigns. They're just being asked to measure. I think that where it becomes a bit dangerous, uh, the over-reliance on performance marketing metrics is when you try to attach um, efficacy of a piece of content whether it's paid earned own social experiential or, or even paid search when you try to attach a value to one single piece of content you absolutely are losing the contextual piece of what's required for engagement in a media fragmented a media fragmented environment where you've got a dispersion of authority so i think that's where the management consultants have gotten it a little bit wrong and I wouldn't be surprised to see them start to amend their performance marketing models a little bit to take into account the complex operating and engagement environment as they, the management consultancies, buy more marketing facing and creative assets because if they don't, they're, mm-hmm. they're going to erode and cannibalize their own businesses. Mm-hmm. Now you called um, your, your predictions the, the communicators renaissance. Um, are there enough Renaissance communicators around? Um, and 
I wonder, I mean, I'd like to maybe look at that question demographically. One of the things we have found looking at CCOs is that um, they have tended towards the older end of the spectrum, um, particularly Dude, compared don't to start, CMOs. Come on, don't, don't start becoming ageist, man. I'm, I'm 54 in a it's couple not... weeks, so that makes me <laughs> nervous. It's not necessarily ageism, um, but I think it speaks to a certain type of person who's held the CCO role. Um, often performing the, the function of a gatekeeper, often more reactive than proactive. And um, what you're calling for here is, is, is quite a different set of skills. Um, look, again, the communicator's renaissance looks at the restoration and modernization of the skills that were central to communicators historically, which is the creation of third-party validated branded content that is dialogue and engagement enabling for brands and organizations. So that, that core competency, I think, needs to be um, re-elevated and modernized through a lens that recognizes the fragmentation in the entire media ecosystem. And I think by and large, in our client organizations, I see it, and as I travel around the world, I see tremendous um, kind of instances of of a renaissance happening where i think it gets sticky is where there is fear in the c-suite of engagement when when the c-suite to include certain ccos that i can't i can't call out my name because i can't think of them but where you have um a defensive bias where you have a bias that doesn't recognize the ability of stakeholders to engage in dialogue whether the brand wants to engage or not and I think that's where you run into the danger. So, um, and there is, I don't think there's a big generational piece, although I had a, a talk with um, with a colleague, a senior colleague, um, a couple days ago about um, understanding the media ecosystem and is there a natural generational bias towards people that are say 35 and younger because they grew up in uh, a media ecosystem that if not dominated certainly um greatly exposed to social which changes their orientation and you know my my response was that's an interesting point however i i do think that that we're witnessing now a hunger for the restoration of credible and reliable sources of news and information. Now that definition lies in the consumer of the news and information. However, I do think that that again is a core competency of communicators and I think it's independent of age. But even if it's not generational, presumably we, we do need, I think, a CCO, as you put it, that is cut from, from more diverse parts of society. Look, from, from more diverse parts of society and also... Um, platform literate mm -hmm. which means yeah. which means by definition very comfortable with insights and analytics which both help form branded content and help anticipate um, issues that are coming down so the brand can start to become um, proactive about their engagement strategies versus playing defense all the time yeah i think it is happening too um for what it's worth the the, the people that are moving into cco roles i think there's been quite a big shift Look um, I'll, over the last two or three years. Look, I'll tell you as I as I travel, 
the markets to me that are really interesting that are starting to be, I think, on the cutting edge. Uh, I think China's starting to get way out in front. Um, in particular, using data and, and using social analytics to anticipate where dialogues are going and where issues are coming up. Um, I think that India is getting there. Uh, and I think they're, you know, the, the difference there is they have a, a wild, wild west um, mainstream media. However, they do have massive penetration of smartphones and mobile web. And therefore, I think CCOs um, have to be able to enable their organizations to, to manage that. So I, I'm optimistic about what I see there. Um, I think the regional comms leads that I'm seeing in Asia Pacific, um, you know, in particular based in the tech and health companies, are well sophisticated and very nuanced and, you know, look at mainstream media and earned media as just one tool in their arsenal. Um, mm -hmm. As I look around mm -hmm. Europe, I think the current kind of political environment is also forcing greater levels of sophistication, in particular anticipating where issues and dialogues are going that can impact um, specific industries. Now, what's the implication for agencies here? Because recent years we've seen many agencies, especially bigger firms, aggressively positioning themselves to go after marketing budgets, which is based on that premise that the CMO is the primary decision maker and, of course, holds much bigger budgets. Um, do those agencies now need to reorient themselves back towards the communications budget? Well, look, in my predictions, I said that uh, I think we're going to see the return of very high digit, high single digit growth to the sector. And that growth, I believe, is going to be driven by players from the $50 million range to the 200, maybe $250 million range. So I think, you know, the mid-sized part of the industry, uh, depending on how you want to um, define it. Um, and I think that what has impacted growth of big agencies recently is um, a number of things. Those that had very heavy exposure to the consumer sector are absolutely being hit by budget cuts at the big consumer brands. There's, there's no question about that. Um, I also think that you know, and I wrote about this, I don't know, a year and a half ago, that you're seeing the impacts of acute agency personality order disorder, or AAPD, which is this notion that every agency wants to be in a different business. PR agencies want to be ad agencies, ad agencies want to be digital agencies, and digital agencies want to be technology consultants. And, beca and because of that, I think a lot of the big agencies have lost sight of what they're selling and who they're selling it to. And I think that's hurt their growth. Um, amongst other, again, economic factors, most notably what I talked about in the consumer sector. Uh, however, I do think that mid-size agencies, because you're at a smaller base, have great opportunities for growth if they stay true to understanding what they're selling and who they're selling it to. And as long as they're making sure it's highly relevant in a fragmented media ecosystem. And to put that into English, that means that agencies need to have competencies in pater and don't social experiential and search and understand the connectivity between those when it comes to having informed and meaningful dialogues with the stakeholders that are critical to their success. And, and I think some of the big agencies 
um, in particular the publicly traded ones, have to be focused on growth that they don't necessarily sit back and think about what the proposition is to the marketplace and think about the potential alienation of a core client and core employee base at the expense of chasing new markets. So do you think core clients have been alienated? Um, I think that there is a potential that clients are saying, communications clients and CCOs are saying, I funded your growth and helped develop your business. Why now are you ignoring me and you want to talk to the chief marketing officer who is potentially a threat to my existing budgets? So I, I think there is, mm. I think there's some of that tension for certain. Great point. I'm not sure I share your bullishness about high single digit growth. Um, I, I totally agree with you on the rise of the midsize. It's, it's something we've documented. Um, I think the numbers from 2017 showed that mid-sized firms were up 6.1%. Um, but even that wasn't enough to drag the overall industry up beyond 5% overall, because as you know, all too well, the top 10 PR firms, um, you know, have, have a huge influence over the, over the overall market growth. Um, but, well, you know, I do think we'll see mid-sized firms continue to outperform. Look, I, no I think mid-sized firms are going to outperform. I think that a handful of the big agencies will actually benefit from some of the cut in advertising spend by consumer brands because marketers um, and communicators are going to be looking to reallocate a percentage of those cut budgets into some form of more cost-effective communication. And, you know, PR has been doing that. In, in the face of economic headwinds for, you know, generations. And, and I don't see this as being any different. Well, that would be very helpful if a few more of the top 10 um, actually returned to growth above 5%. I think so. Um, yeah. Okay. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, um, very interesting, your, your, one of your points, you, you have suggested that we will start to see um, opportunities for private equity. I mean, that I, I think is something we've, we've seen for the last few years. But you've also suggested that we'll start to see more MBOs, management buyouts in the communication space in the coming year. Uh, that's something we're starting to hear about more and more, though they haven't actually seen any concrete evidence of this taking hold. Um, presumably, you're talking here about agencies that are owned by publicly held holding groups. Primarily, primarily. Okay. Um, all right. Go ahead. It seems to me that there are some very big barriers to MBOs, um, namely getting the funding together um, to, to buy back what is presumably a reasonably attractive asset for their owner. Well, let, let's start with your premise, your last premise, which is presumably an attractive <laughs> asset for their owner. I mean, it's, it's on a case-by-case -case basis, and, but... And I think that, look, the holding companies remain under massive pressure. Um, and I think some are responding very well to that pressure. I, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged by, for the industry, I'm encouraged by what I saw come out of WPP and Investor Day. And for your listeners who haven't looked at that, you should look at WPP's site and look at the investor presentation and what they're talking about, because I think that it's a, it's a, it's a um, they're talking about, looking at an offer that reflects what's happening in the marketplace and really helps to address client needs instead of addressing the needs of individual lines of business, which I think is refreshing and, and very interesting. Um, that said, 
I do think that there remains growth pressure and margin pressure on the big holding companies. And I think that their PR assets, the large ones, um, are underperformed, underperforming, and most likely some of those big assets will continue to underperform. So I think sooner or later, you're going to have investor pressure on the holding companies to do something about, in quotes, underperforming assets. Um, now I can ask, are the expectations of those assets realistic? But I think that's a, that's a different podcast. Um, so I think that creates an environment where there is going to be an ear ready to listen. To, okay, to, so you to think offers, that a holding, attractive offer, right? A whole, okay, so a holding group, whereas in years gone by, would 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 you know dismiss it out of hand? That's not the case anymore. Well, look, I don't think it's the case, and I think the evidence for that is um, you've seen WPP blew up Burson Marsteller as a brand. Um, you've mm-hmm. seen it consolidate yep. Hill and Knowlton in a few markets. You've seen Omnicom mm-hmm. blow up um, Ketchum, Fleshman Hillard, and Porter Novelli in four or five markets in Europe and in all of Southeast Asia. And I've heard on your podcast and I've heard on the ground in markets that Omnicom PR Group is expected to be looking at China next for consolidation of PR assets. So what that says on behalf of the holding companies is they don't value the brand. They may value the discipline, but they're using consolidation to drive better results from the discipline. And if they're taking that kind of, let's call it, um, let's be generous and call it a strategic look at the sector that sits in their portfolio, that says to me they've discounted the value of the brands, in which case that becomes a buying opportunity for an MBO or for private equity, or debt financing, or, or you name it. The, the only complication I see in that right now is there's a lot of private equity folks that have investments in other groups that are looking for exits. And with the holding companies being depressed at the moment, um, you've got a whole suite of potential buyers that are that are on the sidelines. Okay. So let's take an agency. Let's just pick one at random. Let's take an agency like Finsbury at WPP. Um, it's, 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 it's a, you know, it's, it's north of a hundred million dollars, um, but it's not as big. It, it, it's mid-sized by global standards. Um, it is dominated, I think, by senior talent to the extent that if the Finsbury chairman, Roland Rudd, was to, you know, suggest he, he was going to leave, that presumably would make WPP listen quite closely to the, to the you know, the potential uh, alternative of an MBO. Um, and you could see someone like Roland Rudd being able to get together the funding, given his connections, um, to take Finsbury private. But when you start talking about the agencies that are performing less well, they tend to be bigger and by orders of magnitude, they tend to be three times bigger or four times bigger than a Finsbury. And that seems to me to create a bigger challenge, not just in terms of um, getting the relevant funding together, but also making the holding companies perhaps uh, a little less concerned if the principles of those agencies were to leave. So I don't, I don't really want to look at specific agencies, but I would paint you a broad picture that, as we discussed earlier, there is growth in mid-size global. And there is growth in mid-size global that has a fine point and a, a fine point to its offer and differentiation in its offer. 
And I believe that if the current corporate structure of some agencies is preventing the agency from tapping the growth in the market for whatever structural reason, then the owners of those assets are going to be open to people that are passionate about the craft, that are passionate about the opportunities in the marketplace, and that are passionate about being able to invest in their people um, and their clients and taking a longer term view. And I think that that condition is currently in the market. I think it's going to continue in the market. And I think it it's damn exciting for the craft of public relations because I think it enables um, long term a long term horizon and investment in the craft, an investment in intellectual capital in the craft, an investment in um, enabling and modernizing technologies. Um, and I think the conditions out there, and I think if you find patient investors and private investors, there is you know a real opportunity um, in the marketplace for for our discipline and related disciplines. Okay, and you don't see funding being an issue for an agency, let's say of two hundred and fifty, three hundred million plus. You think there are, there are buyers who would be willing to take that kind of a firm private? Look, I think in, in this marketplace, if there's a belief in the discipline, I think you can find money, but it has to be patient money. Um, it has to be, you know, Steve Ballmer money with Mark Penn at Stagwell kinds of money. Okay. So private equity money. Private equity or um, MBOs that are um, willing to take on debt because I think you, I think I think I think the access and potential for debt financing is there. All right. What about management consultancies? Well, look, that management consultancies and law firms are the two things that always you know come to my mind when I look at this and think about it. Um, I think management consultancies have an opportunity to expand their addressable market. And you've seen them nibble around it, in particular Accenture with kind of downstream acquisitions. Uh, what's it? Karma, Karma Rama in the UK, amongst others, right? So that they've made a few creative acquisitions. But I actually think that the opportunity for management consultancies lies more in the corporate comp space versus the marketing comp space. And I think that's where the management consultancies who have dabbled so far have maybe, you know, maybe they're going to learn a little bit and course correct on their strategies because I think their strategies has been expand addressable market from, from CMOs, not expand addressable market within the corporation. Hmm. The other thing, I guess, um, is, you know, when, when you describe it as an MBO, you know, it, it makes it sound like it's the, the managers of the business buying it out. But at many of these big firms, the big networks in particular, presumably it's easier for those people to just go and start their own their own businesses. Well, it dep depends on what their ambition is, right? I mean, is there a market for a startup agency in Birmingham? I would say no, whether that's Birmingham, Alabama or Birmingham, England. I would say no, because the small agencies are are suffering um, just as the large ones are. So I, th I think the opportunity is for multi-market global 
highly relevant and differentiated offer that helps brands, companies, organizations navigate a massively fragmented media ecosystem. But I, th I think the key word is, is global slash multi-region. It's not, you know, two people can't go hang out a shingle and uh, I think take advantage of the opportunity in the marketplace. Okay, well that narrows the group considerably. Um, but it's fascinating anyway. I mean, you know, there's been, as you know, as we all know, there's been so much change in holding groups. I mean, I think 2018 brought more change than any of us expected. Uh, the prospect of, you know, MBOs being added into that mix um, is is very interesting. And, uh, well, it would be great for us because it would mean um, a lot more interesting stories. So Look, let's the key, see, the key, let's the key thing for The key thing for all players on the agency side in this space is having a deep understanding of client need. Mm -hmm. And putting together an offer that delivers on that. And that offer has to be one that has continuous evolution at, in it. And furthermore, we have to continue to invest in training skills and experiences for our colleagues to allow them to have a fulfilling career and to work on great clients and to do innovative work. And I think that when you're managed by a spreadsheet instead of driven by a client and, and working to inspire colleagues or practitioners, you got the wrong end of the stick. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough times for the publicly held groups. There's no question. Alan, thank you very much. My pleasure as always. Happy, happy New Year. And uh, look forward to seeing you in the yeah. UK or, or back in Asia soon. I guess maybe Singapore in uh, March could be when I see you. Well, indeed. If, if um, Yeah, I think there's a, there's a plan to have a, a discussion around the future of the CCO role, which, is, which fits quite well with our conversation today. Um, this was a lot of fun. We will be back uh, next week with our next Echo Chamber. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Today.